Would you please stand in body or spirit for the reading of the gospel? A reading from Mark 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage and Bethany on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, he sent off two of his disciples with these instructions. Go into the village just ahead of you, and as soon as you enter it, you will find tethered a donkey on which no one has yet ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anybody asks you, why are you doing this, just say, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back immediately. So they went off and found the donkey tethered by a doorway outside in the open street and untied it. And some of the bystanders did say, why are you doing, what are you doing untying this colt? But they made the reply Jesus told them to make, and the men raised no objection. So they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their coats on its back, and he took his seat upon it. Many of the people spread out their coats in his path as he rode along, and others put down greenery, which they had cut from the fields. The whole crowd, both those who were in front and those who were behind Jesus, shouted, Hosanna! God save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the coming kingdom of our father David. God save us from on high. So Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he looked around at all that, he was going, all that was going on, and since it was already late in the day, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. You know, when it comes to religious life, one of my biggest pet peeves has turned out to be untranslated words. As words pick up so much religious baggage, I ache for the simplicity of a modern translation that cuts to the quick. Did you know that the word angel just means messenger? Did you know that the word church means community? Or how about devil, which means someone who lies or accuses in order to hurt you? Or Satan, which means adversary. Isn't that simpler? Doesn't that mean more and hurt less? Is anybody else tired of annually having to look up the word Hosanna to remember that it means God save us? Or how about gospel? Although gospel is a little bit more fun. Gospel, which means good news, had its own kind of political baggage, even in the days of the early church. Under the shadow of the Roman Empire, the disciples would have been familiar with this phrase from political propaganda. Whenever the Roman army would conquer or dominate a new territory, they would send out a proclamation that would start, Good news! We've brought about peace! We've conquered a new country! Thanks be to our Lord and Savior, the Emperor Caesar. This was the gospel of the empire. The gospel of Jesus, then, is so satisfyingly subversive. It undermines and redefines the imperial ideas of good news, of peace, of victory, and of saviors. Ideas that still thrive today and to which the gospel of Jesus still poses a deadly threat. I love it when I come across subversion and wordplay like this in our ancient stories. 
It breathes such life and such vitality and excitement into them for me. It reminds me that the early church was a community of brilliant activists and rebels against a culture of death. Following Jesus' lead, dangerously embodying love, working within political language and customs to bravely challenge and subvert them, always at great cost. They turned instruments of domination into instruments of community. And that's our story today. This is the story of the indictingly mistitled triumphal entry. It's worth taking into account the timing of today's story because it's totally possible that Roman forces may have been riding into Jerusalem across town at the same time as Jesus. They were riding in to amp up the city's security, getting ready for the Passover festival. And with this in mind, the Palm Sunday narrative reads kind of like the sort of parable that Jesus might tell. To what shall we compare the reign of God? The reign of God might be compared to two rulers. The first entered into the great city, surrounded by subjects that bent to the domination of his rule, but fostering hatred in their hearts. He entered with glorious, intimidating splendor, decorated with gold on a great stallion draped in bright fabrics, guarded by armed warriors who sang praises to his resplendent triumph. It's kill or be killed, was the motto of his kingdom, and it had brought him great success. Everything about him sang out victory, and the people shouted their adoration for this man riding confidently into the conquered city. The second ruler entered into the city from a different gate. Surrounded by devoted friends he had met along his journey, he entered on a small donkey that he had borrowed from a friend with a sincere promise that he would return it as soon as he was finished. Those with him, those who most of us would honestly hesitate to touch, sang songs of freedom in a melody that rang bright with hope. Everything about him radiated humility and integrity, and the people took off their cloaks and laid them down in the road in front of them, covering them with greenery. They welcomed him as he courageously rode into the treacherous city. The reign of the first ruler ended, and the dominator became the dominated. But the reign of the second ruler, as odd as it is, continued to course vitally through history, embracing new citizens in ever-renewing and creative ways with no end in sight. Amen. Like the parables of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the two debtors, the Pharisee and the publican, Lazarus and the rich man, and so on and so forth, here there are two juxtaposing characters, one trusting in God and the other in ego. And like so many parables, there is a confusing twist at the end that invites you deeper into a mystery. One reign ended, the other reign thrived, and it defies the empire's logic. The author of Mark sets this scene on the cusp of the Passover, when all of Israel is making its way to Jerusalem to retell one of their most sacred and subversive stories. The Exodus is a story of liberation from an oppressive empire. 
and the destruction of the enemies of Israel. Or as one theologian calls it, the one where God gives the empire a bath. So yeah, it might make sense that Rome is a little more cautious than usual. They brought in troops, security, and even the man who would become one of the most infamous biblical characters, Pontius Pilate. And it gives me great satisfaction to imagine the triumphant procession of Pilate into Jerusalem from one gate as Jesus anti-triumphantly enters from another. And when you put them together, you see the parable. You see Jesus' subversion, his redefinition of glory, his redefinition of a god, almost poking fun at the grand procession going on across town. It's fun and it's energizing to watch this play out. But then you get the idea that maybe some of the people around Jesus might not have been in on the joke. With the energy of the Exodus story buzzing in their spirits, they shout and they sing, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the coming of our father David. And it's there, right there, that I'm inclined to think, uh-oh. Because I remember Jesus preaching a lot about the kingdom of God, but not so much about the kingdom of David. For them, the kingdom of David was the golden age of Israel, the peak of their power and glory, when they had all the freedom and power, and it was Israel, not Rome, that did the dominating, free to oppress whoever they chose. Jesus, you can make Israel great again, you can hear them shouting. It's time for our own military parade. And you get the impression that they might have missed something. But you know, who can blame them? Because it's not a sin to long for a reign that will grant you justice and liberation. Don't we still feel this ache today? Two weeks ago, I stood at the microphone on Wednesday night and announced three different protests, every one of them, at least in part, led by members of this community. We still feel the ache of brokenness and that drive to march alongside God, embodying the healing that Jesus embodied. We long for justice, for love, for God to win the victory. But I wonder, when we imagine victory, if we have the same thing in mind that Jesus did, or if we'd, we'd rather have a Jesus that looked a whole lot more like a Roman ruler familiar with the sweet taste of winning battles. And then I wonder if the author was not only being subversive about the empire, but about me and you. I wonder if the author intends us to identify at some level with those shouting Hosanna, for those longing for a, a cheaper and a more comfortable version of the kingdom of God. And now I'm in a difficult place. Because now I don't get to just point at Rome and laugh, because this isn't about them anymore. It's about me. And it's not so hard to recognize this if we are honest about how unsatisfyingly this story unfolds. For instance, Jesus clops into town, not on the backs of slaves, but on a donkey. It's not even his donkey, it's just some guy's donkey. 
his disciples go into town and just start untying this donkey. And the people watching are like, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? And the disciples are like, it's cool, our friend needs it. And as if this were a satisfying explanation, the bystanders are like, oh, okay, if your friend needs it. Can you see this happening today with a car? Oh, your friend needs it. And Jesus doesn't even keep the donkey. He gives it back when he's done. And then there's that ending. He rides up on a donkey. People are throwing their cloaks and greens into his path. They're singing songs of joy and liberation, gearing up for him to bust in and challenge the empire's rule. So Jesus marches right up to the temple, looks around, throws back his shoulders and says, well, it's late. I better be headed home. Excuse me? This reminds me of Forrest Gump. When he's amassing this army of followers running behind him, and then he just turns around and goes, I guess I'll go home now. <laughs> what? Or maybe, maybe we're not giving Jesus enough credit. Maybe he was just so flustered by what he saw that he just had to go home and regroup before coming back the next day and flipping over tables. Maybe this is more of a, I literally can't even with this place, Jesus. <laughs> But regardless, it's not the kind of ending to this story that tells us we've got a good grip on what's going on. It throws us. It bucks our expectations. And that is also what is challenging about this story. There's an old story about a man named Nasruddin who became prime minister to the king. Once, while he walked through the palace, he saw a royal falcon. And Nasruddin thought, I have never seen this sort of pigeon before. So he got out a pair of scissors, and he trimmed the claws, and he trimmed the beak, and he trimmed the wings, and he made it appear far softer and more manageable. Now there you go, he said. You look like a decent pigeon. Somebody has obviously been neglecting you. The Bible claims that God created humanity in God's own image. And one wise author adds the addendum, humanity has been returning the favor ever since. If our stories are to be believed and our tradition is to be honestly observed, then we have always been far more adept at molding God into we, what we expect a God to be rather than allowing God to mold us into what God expects a human to be. After all, to change, to be transformed, requires some kind of death. It requires the death of ego, the death of false definitions of ourselves, the need to indulge ourselves to the detriment of a peaceful and just future, each of these must be offered up as a sacrifice. But as the story this week is about to unfold, it turns out we are way better at killing God than allowing God to kill these parts of ourselves. Left unchallenged, many churches tend to treat Palm Sunday like a mini Easter. One pastor called it Easter light. It plays into our expectations that Jesus storming into a city is the beginning of victory. And it's kind of confusing. While we watch kids sing and skip down the aisle waving palm branches, 
it's easy to lose sight of the dark purple fabric that still hangs above us. To many of us, a triumphal procession into a city to dominate the enemy and enforce justice might look exactly, what, exactly like what we'd expect of God's victory. But this story just isn't what we want it to be. Perhaps this is how the violent God of much religion wins over evil. But it's not how Jesus wins. And it's not how love wins. Less than a year from now, these palm branches that we've been waving will be nothing more than ash smeared across our foreheads. And maybe that ageless misunderstanding is, in fact, the culmination of our Lenten journey. Maybe this is the most insidious communal sin that we have to face. The drive to make God into our image rather than opening ourselves to be reformed into the loving, nonviolent, humble, embarrassing image of God that we see in Jesus. Think about it. Think about the stories you know about the wandering rabbi who changed the world. He makes his home among the undignified and the oppressed. He's a healing challenger who totally abandoned himself to God. Is that really the Jesus of our religion? Is this really the Jesus that you know so intimately that every time you look in the mirror, you look more like him? Are you always dying so that he can live in you? Or are you killing him that you might survive? It turns out the first ruler was onto something after all. It's kill or be killed. And this is the question that we now have to face. In the darkest hour of our Lenten pilgrimage, may we cling tightly to God's grace over the course of this week as our cries turn from Hosanna to crucify.